for those of you who don't know or have forgotten, we're working through a series on the character of God. So we understand better about what he is like. Uh, we've looked in our first week at the fact that he is immutable, meaning he doesn't change. The fact he's eternal. We've looked at his righteousness, his justice, his wrath. And then we looked last time at his omnipresence, the fact he's everywhere. We looked at his omniscience, the fact he knows everything. And we looked at his omnipotence, the fact that he is all powerful. So today, as you can see on the screen, we're looking at his sovereignty, his independence and his truth. So let's pray before we turn to the, 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 the word. Lord, we thank you for how amazingly great you are. Thank you for what we've seen so far in this series, that you are a, a, an amazing, mighty God. One who cares, one who never changes. And that means because you never change, you are always there for us. And you're always, you know our situations and Lord, you, you, you meet every need. And we thank you. We pray that as we turn to your word now, that you would help us to understand it. Help us, Lord, to know more of how good you are and that you would stretch our faith, you'd stretch our understanding, stretch our brains to understand. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope that as we have worked through the series so far, your understanding of God has been stretched, as I was just praying. As we try and come to grips with the fact that God is infinite in all of his attributes, his whole character is infinite. And we then realise that God is bigger and greater than anything that our human understanding can comprehend. But it's wonderful to see that God is so totally worthy of our worship, our praise, our trust and our devotion. Ours is not a God uh, who we can merely take as a pastime, but is one who has done so much for us that he truly deserves our full allegiance. I think all too often the enemy infiltrates our minds so that we think God is either incapable of really helping us or he doesn't really care as much as the Bible says that he does. And we need to come to realise that what the Bible teaches us about God is true. And then get that truth deep into our minds and our thoughts. I've said before, and I'll say it again, that all of God's attributes are shared by each member of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And uh, we've also seen that we must hold his attributes, all of them, in tension together, that we don't major on one at the expense of the others. And uh, if we do that, if we, if, we, if we get out of balance, then we'll have an unbalanced view of God. So to kick off this morning, I want to start with God's sovereignty, which in a way is linked to his omni omni omnipotence and his omniscience that we saw last time. God rules over his creation in a sovereign way. He knows the end from the beginning and his undiminished sovereignty expresses the way that God exercises power over his creation. And whilst he allows humans to respond to him in free will, his purposes for mankind will be achieved because he is sovereign. And this aspect of God's character is linked to his providence, which teaches that God is actively related 
to and involved in his creation at each moment, but also that he's distinct from his creation. God's sovereignty and his providence teach us that events in his creation are not random, they're not chance, but they're determined by God, which is very reassuring, uh, I think, in these days that we live in, when everything seems to be changing so much. It was God's sovereignty that took God, that took Israel into Egypt. It was God's sovereignty that brought them out of Egypt and into the promised land. It was his sovereignty that, that uh, took the Israel into Babylon because of their disobedience. But also it was his sovereignty that brought them out again 70 years later, exactly as he had promised. It's God's sovereignty that brought Jesus to this earth. And into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, on exactly the day that Daniel had prophesied. It's God's sovereignty that dispersed Israel in 70 AD, but also which has brought Israel back into the land in 1948, just as been, has been stated in his word. And it's God's sovereignty that is moving world events to a climax, exactly as prophesied despite staggering odds that would have made this seem impossible when the writers of the Bible were shown what is to come. Even Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, recognized this about God. In Daniel 5, uh, sorry, Daniel 4, verse 35, uh, we read, all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? And then Paul echoes it in Ephesians chapter, chapter 1, verse 11, where we read, In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. In other words, what God has decided to do will come to pass. And then Paul could also uh, say in Romans 8.28, it's a well-known verse, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So God works things together according to his purpose. And then again, Paul could say in Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 to 17, he's speaking of Jesus, he says, for by him, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Like that takes a sovereign God to do that. God rules sovereignly over his creation. He holds it together until the time when he knows that it served his purpose. And then he will make new heavens and a new earth. No one can truly challenge God's sovereignty and get away with it. God's enemies will find that out to their cost and many have already over history. And I think that God's sovereignty is one of his attributes that has been both overemphasized and sometimes underemphasized, which is why I have 
emphasized in every one of these sessions that we must hold all of God's attributes together. And I think because of this imbalance that has come, because of an, either an overemphasis or an underemphasis of God's sovereignty, it's become something of a hot potato in the church. There are some who push God's sovereignty too far to the extent that uh, they believe that God sovereignly directs the life of each person so that we are little more than puppets. Such an approach suggests that we have no free will, but that we go through life as if we're on divine train tracks so that we have no ability to choose what we do. Um, allow me to quote from Michael Lloyd in Cafe Theology. He says, if fate is king, and just as an aside, I would add, if God's overemphasized sovereignty is king, if our lives are fixed in advance, advance if they're preset, prearranged, predetermined, then it is difficult to see what meaning they could possibly have for us. And I would also add that it's also difficult to see what meaning our lives would have for God, who created this, this universe, so that he can have a meaningful relationship with mankind. He wants to relate and he wants us to choose to relate to him because we want to, we love him, not because we're puppets or robots. And this is where we need a, a balance in considering God's various attributes, because it's true that God does have infinite sovereignty. He also has complete knowledge of each person, of what we do and what we will do. He does indeed direct our paths and he brings about situations in our life, lives uh, that he sovereignly oversees. But we need to remember that God is outside time whilst we're locked in time. He can look at our lives and he can know what we will do. But it's also clear from the Bible that we do have choice we have free will yes it's tainted by sin but it's part of being made in God's image that we have the dignity of being given choice and the Bible is full of commands and exhortations that we are to choose to follow God and obey his word and I think uh, that those who push the the, divine, the the robot side of it if you like um, that they would suggest that some are predestined for heaven and others are predestined to hell. But I don't believe the Bible teaches that. No one will spend eternity in hell who has not chosen to reject the salvation offered by Jesus. Because otherwise, God's justice would be unjust. There are some who take it even further and suggest that God is the author of evil because he is so sovereign. Um, but I think actually that's bordering on blasphemy. There are numerous events in this world that God hates, but he has not predetermined that they will occur. James 1:17 tells us that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. So if something comes from God, it must be good or have a good purpose, because he is good. I'm very mindful that God's sovereignty is a huge subject. Uh, I've only scratched the surface. Um, I don't have time today to develop it further. But suffice it to say, we have an amazing sovereign God 
who wants loving and willing children. And God's overall plan will certainly be accomplished. But within that, people have free will and his plan takes account of our choices and our decisions. I think one of the, the best analogies I can, I've heard is that it's a bit like a, an ocean liner, a cruise liner. It, it, you know, it may decide to, or the, the captain decides it's sailing, sailing from, say, Southampton to New York. It's going to get there because the captain is directing the ship. But the, the passengers can spend their time having a meal. They can swim on, on, in the pool. They can walk up and down. They can walk in the opposite direction from where the ship's going. But the ship's going to get there. And I think that's a little bit like, it, it can never be a full analogy, but I think it's a bit like that. God's purposes will be accomplished, but we have the choice of what we do along the way. But he wants us to obey him and walk with him. Now, for the believer, the one who truly knows and loves the Lord Jesus, God's sovereignty is wonderful because we know that God will fulfill his plans for the universe and his plans for each one of us. That means we can have real assurance and comfort knowing that God in his perfect wisdom has decreed that what he has decreed will surely come to pass. And we can see world events moving towards the climax that's been foretold in the Bible. And no attempts by Satan or his demons or by fallen mankind will be able to frustrate or stop or even delay God's purposes. We know that God will bring us home to heaven to be part of the bride of Christ. And that gives us great assurance as well. But for the unbeliever, God's sovereignty is very challenging and something to be feared. I think for the same reason, actually, because God's purposes will come to pass as prophesied. The judgment and the eternal damnation that awaits the unbeliever will occur. And nothing and no one can prevent that. And it just reminds us how vital it is to come to Christ for salvation while there is still time. Moving on, there's an often forgotten attribute of God, that he is independent, which we can define as follows. God does not need us or the rest of creation for anything. Yet we and the rest of creation can glorify him and bring him joy. God does not need us or the rest of creation for anything. Yet we and the rest of creation can glorify him and bring him joy. Sometimes this attribute of God is called his self-existence, or if you want the theological term, is aseity, A-S-E-I-T-Y. And yes, I hadn't heard of it either until I was preparing this. Um, <clears throat> maybe you have, but uh, it's not, not a word that's often used. God is fully independent and self-sufficient. He doesn't need any part of creation in order to exist because he existed from eternity past, eternally complete in himself, long before he created anything that we now see. And Paul speaks of this when he speaks to the men of Athens in um, Acts chapter two, uh, sorry, sorry, Acts 17, 24 to 25. He says, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands nor is he, is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life 
breath and all things. God doesn't need anything from mankind, but he does love to have fellowship with us and to receive our worship. And then God spoke to Job in Job 41 and verse 11, and he declared, Who has preceded me that I should pay him? Everything under heaven is mine. And then in Psalm 50, 10 to 12, we read, For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know the all the birds of the mountains, and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all its fullness. God is above and separate from his creation, but he gets involved in it, which is so lovely. And God only exists because of his inherent nature. He was never created. He never came into being because he always has been. So that must mean that he is independent of anything or anyone else. Psalm 90 verse 2 uh, tells us, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. No one has ever contributed to God anything that did not first come from God, who created all things. And God didn't create us because he was lonely or needed fellowship, because that would mean that he was less than perfect or less than complete without his creation. And given the, the blissful coexistence of the Trinity before the creation of the world, there could be no loneliness. But God, in his love, decided to create the universe, including humans, so that his heart of love could be shown to his creation and so that they could enjoy and we can enjoy fellowship with him. And I, I would suggest that the, the fellowship within the Godhead is far richer and more perfect than any fellowship that we have with him or indeed with anyone else. But the good news is that during the eternity that we have ahead of us, our relationships won't be marred by sin, thanks to what Jesus has done on the cross, and they'll be deeper and richer than we know now. We see also that God's independence is found in the name that he gave to himself in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And this can be also translated as I will be what I will be. But in both cases, there is the implication that God's existence, his nature and his character are determined only by himself and are not dependent on any outside source. And as with God's eternality, this must mean that God has always been and always will be exactly who he is. And God's independence actually goes further than our statement that God does not need his uh, creation for anything. It must mean that he cannot need the creation for anything. Because if he did need creation for anything, then that would imply some incompleteness in God. And of course, that can't be the case. And it's important that we realize that the difference between us as part of God's creation and God, who is the creator, is immensely vast. God is not, not merely sort of rather bigger and greater than us. God exists in a completely different order of being. 
And that's necessary to his character, that he exists in that infinitely better, stronger, loving, and more excellent way. And yet, thankfully, with Jesus, he's bridged that gap that we can have relationship. So we should never project any limitation onto God in our consideration or in our understanding of him. We need him moment by moment for our very existence. But God exists independently of any outside source or influence. Everything else can pass away in an instant. But God, by necessity, exists forever, fully complete and fully perfect. But I think grasping this shows us the vast depth of grace shown by God to us in Christ. The fact that he's done so much to bridge that gap. So in light of this, I think it's, it's astounding but true that we and the rest of God's creation can glorify God and bring him joy, even though he's never lacked joy. Um, it must be the case, as otherwise the awesomeness of God's independent character could suggest that we and the rest of creation are meaningless, but we can bring him joy. One of the main reasons that people seek psychiatric help these days is because they feel there is no purpose in life. It, and to be honest, that's, I think, an inevitable fruit of telling our children and adults that we are the result of evolved blobs of random goo. But because God has made us, we have purpose and we are to give him glory and we're to love him and live for him. Isaiah speaks uh, of God restoring Israel in chapter 43, verse 7. He says, everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory, I have formed him. Yes, I have made him. Did you see that? We are created for his glory. So we, we in some sort of way, enhance what is already complete. Uh, we, we, we give him glory. But it applies to us in the church too, Ephesians 1 verse 12, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. And this will typify the scene that we find in heaven, foretold by John in Revelation 4 verse 11. He says, you are worthy, O God, to receive glory and honour and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. And then he goes a step further in Isaiah 62, verse 5. For as a young man marries a virgin, and so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. In the previous verse, God also told Israel that he delights in them. And it's a staggering concept that God who is above everything else, takes delight in and rejoices over his people. And to see that in the light of his infinite magnificence that we've been considering, I think is awesome, but wonderful. Nothing could give greater significance or purpose in a person's life to know that God loves them, wants to receive the glory from them, has a purpose for them, it just adds meaning and fullness and completeness. It's glorious. And for the believer, God's independence is wonderful. As I say, it gives us purpose and meaning in life. 
It means that God doesn't depend on anyone or anything else. So is always there in all his perfection, loving us and wanting relationship with us now and forever. Nothing can alter or successfully challenge God's perfection or his being. So we have great reassurance. We have great security in him because of that. But for the unbeliever, it means no one can divert God from his purposes, nor can anyone challenge his righteous judgment. God, as independent deity and creator, is entirely entitled to make the rules, and he will ensure that his will is done. And then finally for today, let's consider the fact that God is truth. And linked to that is his faithfulness. So I'm going to draw a bit of faithfulness into the truth as well. He's never said or done anything with any hint of falsehood, and he never will. His character is impeccable. We could give this, de uh, this definition. God's truthfulness means that he is the true God and that all his knowledge and words are both true and the final standard of truth. God's truthfulness means that he is the true God and that all his knowledge and words are both true and the final standard of truth. As an example, we can see this in 1 John 5 verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we, mean, we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true, in his Son Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. In the first place, we can state that God, as revealed in Scripture, is the only true God. And that all other so-called deities must be false idols. Jeremiah states this in chapter 10, verse 10 to 11. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earth will tremble and the nations will not be able to endure his indignation. Thus you shall say to them, the gods that have not made the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under these heavens. God in his, God in his character must conform to all that God should be in all aspects of his character. If he did do that, he wouldn't be a true God. But having said that, God alone knows what a true God should be like, and he's it. That means that God is not like what perhaps our idea of what a true God should be, but he's the one who defines what a true God should be like, and he declares that in the Bible for us. And God's character and his knowledge are true in their entirety, and they are the final standard of truth. And because he is true, his perception of his complete knowledge and understanding is always also true. So God's words are always true and the final standard of truth. And even if our logic suggests otherwise sometimes, we have to conclude our logic is faulty because God cannot do, cannot do or be anything other than true. That means he's reliable in all, all that he says. He will always keep his promises. Psalm 12, verse 6 says, The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. 
And I think that gives us immense security and comfort in our lives. Because whatever God says about himself and his creation, it's true. It must be completely, completely correspond to reality. What he says is based on his complete knowledge of things. So we can trust his words to be fully true. And that also means that we ignore God's words to our own detriment. And it's not fashionable these days to base our lives on the truth of the Bible. But given God's truthfulness, it is in fact the greatest wisdom for us to do that. And as God's children, it's also appropriate for us to be truthful in all that we say or do. In the definition I gave you a few moments ago, we saw that all God's knowledge is true and is the final standard of truth. If we look at Job 37 verse 16, he tells us, do you know how the clouds are balanced? Those wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge. We've considered how God knows all things, but now we can say that everything he knows is true. He's never mistaken in his understanding or in his perception of events. For not only uh, he not only knows the truth, but he is the truth. That's why Jesus could say in John 14 verse 6, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And from this we can see that not only does Jesus speak the truth, but he also is the truth. And because he is the truth and tells the truth, this means that there is no other way for us to be saved. Because God is never mistaken in either his understanding or in what he says, this must mean that when he says he is the creator of the universe, it's true. Again, that's not so popular these days in, in the society we live in. He was there at creation and his understanding is complete and he's told us truthfully how it happened. And if man seeks to contradict that, then man is telling a lie. Because we suffer from the effects of the fall, we too easily follow after Satan, who's the father of lies. But that which is untrue can never be of God. And because God is always true and truthful, he must also be faithful and therefore reliable in all his words and works. And sometimes God's faithfulness is regarded as a separate attribute, but it's very closely related to his truthfulness. And God's faithfulness means that he will always do what he has said and fulfill what he has promised. Every word spoken by God and every promise that he has made are completely true. God has never misled anyone and he never will. God will never prove unfaithful to those who put their trust in him. What God says is faithful and true according to his standards, which are the only true measure of what truth and faithfulness are. God isn't dependent on what man thinks might be true because it's God who defines truth. Only God can, can speak complete truth because what he says comes out of his perfect and complete knowledge. Sometimes we say things that we honestly think are true but sometime later we have to backtrack on what we've said because we find out 
more information that we realize renders our previous statement to be untrue. But God never has to do that because he speaks from complete knowledge. So everything that he says is true the first time, always has been, always will be. And because truth is inherent to God's character, he cannot lie. And the more we come to understand God from reading his word, the more we will understand what is true. As we grow in our understanding of God's truth, the more we will understand his ways and the more we will have solidity in our faith because it's based on solid truth. We will delight in discovering new truths from the Bible, some of which are there to be found on the surface. Others need to be searched out and are all the more precious because of that. And as Christians, we should be truthful people because we cannot live shady lives if we claim to follow Christ. People should know that we are truthful, reliable people because that honours God. We live in a society that is often careless with the truth, but we should be different. We should love truth and hate falsehood. Proverbs 12 verse 22 says, Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who deal truthfully are his delight. And that should be reflected in how we live. And for the believer, God's truthfulness is wonderful and it gives us great assurance for the future. Titus 1 verse 2 says, In hope of eternal life which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. We have that hope of eternal life. And our faith is rooted in the Bible which sets out God's truth and tells us how to be saved. God promises us many things as believers and these give us such encouragement and security because we know that God always tells the truth. If any of the Bible were to be false, then we would have no idea how to be saved or whether we are saved or what our future is as Christians. But because God is true and because the Bible is true, every word of God is flawless and pure. That means we do know how to be saved. And as true Christians, we know that we are saved. We know that we have a rich, eternal inheritance in Christ and that is coming again to take us to be with him forever. And God's truthfulness is such a wonderful attribute and one that we should treasure and rejoice in. And because God is true, we know that all evil will be defeated, all falsehood will be banished and sin and death will be forever conquered. But for the unbeliever, God's truthfulness is awesome. God has spoken truthfully about the judgment that must come on the unbeliever because God is just and holy. The unbeliever will face the great white throne of Christ's judgment and the lie of the enemy that there is no judgment will be exposed for the untruth that it is. Every false act and statement will be exposed and unless the person doing these things has repented and trusted in the, in the work of Jesus' death and resurrection for us, then God's truth will require judgment. Revelation 12 uh, verse 8 says, it tells us, But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars will have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone 
which is the second death. That's, that's the fate of the unbeliever. And it's a fate that no one in their right mind would want to endure. But because of Satan's lies, many will have to face it. We've seen some amazing facets of God's character today. And if we've only just scratched the surface of them. But from them, we can have such assurance in our lives because God is so reliable. And because he is sovereign from what he said, from what, uh, he, and because he's sovereign, what he says goes. Can I urge you to ponder these things, to let God show you the beauty and the depth of these wonderful characteristics of his glorious character. God has them in infinite measure. And for that, we will be eternally grateful. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for these amazing truths. Thank you that because you're sovereign, we know that you are ruling over this universe, that your purposes will come to pass. We thank you that there's nothing that can be added to or taken from your character. You don't need anything to, to help you exist. You are there because you are independent and glorious. And we thank you that you're truthful that every word you've ever said, any, every thought has been based and rooted in your characteristic of truthfulness, that you are the standard of truth. And because of that, we know that your word is reliable and true. Help us to take these things into our being, to absorb them, to ponder them, to meditate on them, and to worship you and love you even more because of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.